we're, we're going to kind of triple down on this thing. It's the text that we're going to be studying. It is a song that we are singing to, uh, to drive this deeper into our minds and hearts. And it is the, uh, the scripture that is assigned to you. Yes, you have homework to memorize. So I would invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 6 as we continue this series in the book of Numbers. get to Numbers chapter 6. If you were with us last week, you noticed that we stopped short of finishing the chapter, and we will finish it today with perhaps the briefest passage that I have ever preached personally. I don't normally take a passage this short, but there's so much that God has seen fit to put into this blessing, this benediction, that uh, it's appropriate for us to, st- to look at it by itself. Starting with verse 22 of number 6. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, as we endeavor to look at this passage, it can be easy for us to see it as some sort of incantation. As so many of the ancient cultures would have done in the invoking of the name of their gods. As so many of those contemporaries around us do, as they fall into the trap of thinking that praying with the right formula will somehow <laughs> somehow force you to bless us. Help us, Lord, to understand your word as you give it. That we might understand your intent in the plain reading of the text and in the context with which you give it. Lord, as we begin today, we recognize that there are those among us with heavy hearts. We pray for those who are grieving and the loss of loved ones. We pray for those who are grieving still further with unresolved conflicts. We pray for those who are struggling with the burdens of this life, facing illness, coming face to face with our mortality. Lord, may these things drive us to you. Drive us to our knees at the foot of the cross. May the struggles that we face, the pain we endure, and our inevitable demise in passing from this world, give us a heart of wisdom and humility and gratitude that we might recognize your great faithfulness and embrace you on your terms that we might be yours. Guide us now in our study. Be blessed and honored, Lord, as we seek to be faithful to your word and receive our sacrifice of praise. May you have all the glory and honor today. We pray this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the book of Numbers, as we have been uh, discovering, is about God's faithfulness to His unfaithful people as He fulfills his promises to them and brings them into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's people seem to consistently fail to recognize the wonder of the holy God choosing to make them his own. Let that sink in for just a moment. Perhaps Israel didn't let it sink in enough in this generation. And perhaps we also 
failed to let it sink in enough how amazing and wonderful and marvelous it is that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the only Holy One, has chosen a people for Himself and has gone out of His way to make that people His, to cleanse them from sin, that He might put His stamp on them and say, these belong to Me. Israel, in the book of Numbers, consistently fails to recognize how amazing that is. They're prone to ungratefulness and disobedience, yet God cares for them, protects and preserves them, shows them mercy, reveals Himself to them, and dwells among them. They continue to stray from Him, yet He continues to call them His own. This generation of Israelites, much like far too many Christians today, failed to grasp the core reality of today's passage. That core reality is this, the greatest blessing of God's people is the reality of belonging to Him. Let me say it again. It's not difficult. It's not complicated. But it is crucial that we get this. And it is the entire heart of this blessing that we are studying today. The greatest blessing of God's people is the reality of belonging to Him. Now, this short passage often referred to as the Aaronic blessing because God is commanding it uh, for Aaron and his sons to speak over the people, or the priestly blessing, the priestly benediction. It's, it's the culmination of what we have seen to this point in the book of Numbers. And though it's brief, it's packed with content vital to understanding the relationship between God and his people. We will see this play out in the narrative of Numbers, once we get past these first 10 chapters, then we're going to start, start to see a movement, a, a, a plot, if you will. And this plot is carrying forward the idea of what we're seeing here. That God has a people, that God knows His people, that He wants to bless His people, and yet His people continue to be unfaithful. There are consequences for that, and yet God at no point fails to be who he is in faithfulness to his people. So as we are, are wrestling this, uh, we've, been, we've been seeing so far in chapters 1 and 2, then in chapters 3 and 4, then in chapters 5, and chapter 5, and then in the beginning of chapter 6, uh, we've seen that God requires his people to order every aspect of their lives around him. That those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve Him on His terms. And that the presence of God requires the absence of sin. We also saw those ideas expressed last time in the special Nazarite vow through which we learned that drawing close to God requires separating from the things of the flesh. Now, all of this builds on God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and then repeated in 15 and then clarified again in Genesis 17. Let's turn together to Genesis 17 and we'll look at the first eight verses there. So just flip back to the left and find Genesis 17. beginning with verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old. Okay, 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, 
and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. God is making for himself a people set apart as his special possession, whom he blesses and preserves and defends, to whom he reveals himself both gloriously and intimately, to whom he is inexplicably merciful and whom he delivers from both others, like Egypt, and from their own sin, as he provides the sacrificial law. Here in Numbers 6, verses 22 to 27, the Lord commands that his priests are to speak this blessing, this prayer, over the people. And in so doing, they would put His name on the people. They would invoke His name on the people. And He would indeed bless them. So let's look at this benediction together. First, you'll see in your program that we've kind of broken this down a little strangely perhaps, but hopefully it helps. I had the, the great pleasure, as I know Darcy did, when I was, uh, a few others in this room, of having uh, Mrs. Mary Jo Reck as a middle school English teacher. And she used to force us to do what I think I was the only one in the class that ever enjoyed, diagram sentences. Raise your hand if you remember diagramming sentences. Some of you are older than me and that was pretty normal. Very few people today going to school have any idea what that means. And we would have to break them down and look at the different parts of speech and how the, the grammar works and the function of it. So notice in the first part, part of this, it begins with the Lord. Three times in this blessing, we see this phrase, the Lord. And I should have in your program been a little more careful and capitalized all the letters of Lord. In most of your Bible translations, you'll see that. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's different than just the normal Lord with a lowercase l, or even the normal Lord with a capital L. Lord in general, we recognize as master, ruler. And when we see it with a capital L, we recognize that it's referring to God as our master and ruler. But when we see it in your modern Bible translation, with those all capitals, that's a, a pretty standard uh, mechanism that modern translations use to demonstrate the difference between the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah in, in uh, the Greek translation and many others, and Adonai, or, or Lord. So when we see it here, you'll notice that it's capitalized. Three times we see the name of the Lord. Notice this. All the doing is done by the great doer. All the doing is done by the great doer. The Lord here is the subject. He is the one who is doing everything in this blessing. So while Aaron and his sons, the priests, are to bless the people. They're not actually blessing the people. They're blessing in the sense that they are speaking the blessing of God over the people. They are praying for God's blessing. Now, you may notice also in the way it's, whether you're familiar with this or not, as you see it, it's written in what we might call the subjunctive voice. It is a it is a form of writing speaking of that which is not as if it were. This is when we use would or might and so on. So you might put in the implicit words, may the Lord, and you may hear it spoken that way, may the Lord bless you. This is a prayer saying, may God do these things in your life. The Lord is the doer. He is the subject here. 
Notice also the word you. We see this formula coming out. The Lord do these things to you. Right? You here being the, the indirect object, or actually the object because these are acting on him. You are the one receiving the blessing. God is doing it. Aaron's praying for it. But the people, the you, receive this blessing. Now just as we notice that there's a, a special way that the Lord is mentioned here by his personal name, the most holy name, I am that I am, Yahweh, three times, we also see that the you here in the original language, strangely, is in the singular all three times. As we see this laid out when the Lord is blessing you, as the Lord is doing all of the things that he does, he's doing it to a singular you while it's being spoken to a plural you. It's being spoken over the Israelites. So the clear implication in this is that God is, is commanding Aaron to bless the people by blessing the individuals. So he's blessing the people of Israel, the group, the nation, God's chosen people, by speaking these blessings in the individual. God is targeting his people individually, personally. God loves the church, but he loves each and every Christian uniquely and specially within the church. There is a unique relationship. When I speak of my children, I love them as a group, but I also love them individually. And I have a different and unique relationship with each one. I know them by name and by heart. In the same way, God knows his people by name and by heart. Notice this, the Lord knows and loves those who are his. The Lord knows and loves those who are his. All the doing is done by the great doer, and it is done unto those that he already, in his heart, in his infinite wisdom, in his perfect keeping, has called his and knows personally. The Lord is doing these things to you, to Israel, and to each individual Israelite. Now notice th there's a structure to this blessing. And it can be easy to overlook it if you have been involved in, in any of our uh, uh, Bible studies in recent times where we're going through the dig and discover principles. Then you understand that when we're reading the Bible, we want to look at a plain reading of it in its context to see how it was written, what it was intended to say to the original audience, in their setting, and then draw principles from that. And as we're asking good questions to get to that place, we need to look at the structure. How is it written? Because the way we write a thing, this is a universal principle of literature, the way we write a thing in itself bears weight and meaning. So in this blessing, you'll see that there are three couplets or three parallels that go together. Verse uh, 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. Okay, one subject, two verbs. The Lord bless you and keep you. The next couplet there, or the next parallel that we see, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And then lastly, we see the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Outside of the blessing itself, we see a similar thing at the end. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The format's a little different, but it's interesting how similar it is. Within the blessing itself, within this benediction, we see this structure. Notice the bless and keep. Mark this down. Those God favors are held in his hand. Those God favors are held in in his hand. Now as we see this, there are two different verbs, but they are intertwined. The Lord bless you. The Lord give his favor to you, look upon you favorably, and keep you, protect you, preserve you, defend you. 
to make sure that you are kept. They go together. As God pours out his favor on his people, he demonstrates this by keeping them, by preserving them. No one who belongs to God falls away. No one who belongs to God is lost. You cannot be his and have anyone snatch you out of his hand. God is too powerful for this. So God preserves his own. He keeps Israel. Now, Paul pointed out very clearly that not all who are of the line of Abraham are actually of Abraham. Because those whom God calls to be his own are those who are his by faith. We see that in in the difference between Isaac and Ishmael, the child of promise and the child of the flesh. We see that, that same thing today. There are people who claim to belong to God by their Jewish heritage, by their Christian heritage. My mama took me to church every day, every, every Sunday. Every time the church doors were open, we were there. We were singing the hymns. We, remember, I had perfect attendance in Sunday school. And we look at that, which is observable and measurable by the flesh, which can be done without knowing the Lord at all and think that somehow that is our measure of belonging to Him. If I was a good little Sunday school kid, if I you know, went through my confirmation and all these different things. But the Lord knows who are us. He knows the heart that has repented. The Lord has drawn us into that. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. It only matters what the Lord thinks. But the Lord never lets go. His faithfulness is great, and there is no shadow of turning with Him. So if our belonging to God were dependent on us, then we might fear that we would somehow fall out of His hand. I'm not strong enough to hold my Father's hand. I don't have enough faith to hold on. Christian, it's never been about your faith being enough. If it's as tiny as a mustard seed, if it exists at all, in other words, if you believe God, God will hold you. Will you struggle? Name me anybody who hasn't not named Jesus. And even Jesus struggled. You might remember him crying, uh, crying out to the Lord and praying so intensely in his struggle that his sweat were, was filled with the blood of broken capillaries from the stress. Jesus himself struggled. So don't lose heart because your faith seems small and weak. It's not about how tightly you can hold his hand It's about the reality that his hand will not let you go. Therefore, hold his hand. God, those God favors are held in his hand. They are protected. They are defended. They are preserved. Nothing can touch them. Gary read earlier from Psalm 121, and as he mentioned, that's a a psalm that is often... um, Let me say misapplied. I hope that's the right word. We take it as if that means that nothing bad can ever come into the life of a Christian. And we have this mentality of of prosperity. Now don't misunderstand, that psalm is actually talking about earthly protection and earthly prosperity, but not perhaps the way Israel would always have thought of it. Or that you and I would always have thought of it. Now the psalmist writing it knows exactly what he's saying. But in Psalm 121, Israel has been, by the time this is compiled, Israel has been already in exile in Babylon. They have been utterly destroyed as a nation, or so it would appear. They've been carried off. Everything has been horrible. There has been famine and starvation and There seems to be no hope. But God brought them back and reestablished them in Jerusalem in the temple, not as the mighty nation that they had been, but as his people. 
Now, after having seen all of that and knowing that God does allow his people to go through various trials for his own purposes, sometimes because of our waywardness and our sin, sometimes because he's developing strength in us, the psalmist says, my help doesn't come from the hills. My help comes from the Lord. I am confident that if I am his and he blesses and favors me, that he will keep and preserve me. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 127. We're going to look at Psalm 127 briefly, and then we're going to turn back to Psalm 25. So if you beat me there, you can get a head start on Psalm 25. Psalm 127, we studied this when we were looking at parenting. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This was a very important concept in the shalom, in the peace that God was bringing Israel as he blessed them because they had had a period of barrenness when children were so devalued that parents in the exile resorted to cannibalism of their own children, even arguing about how unfairly they divided their own children. The the idol worshipers throughout the region, throughout many centuries, had offered sacrifices of children to Molech. They put their children in the fire to please a pagan god. So there's a different picture in how God looks at his own people. And no matter how much we might try to take care of ourselves, to keep ourselves, unless the Lord is our keeper, unless the Lord is doing the work, it's a vain labor. It comes up empty. Turn back to Psalm 125, or to Psalm 25, sorry. Psalm 25. It may sound familiar, at least the beginning, because we've sung this many times here in church. Psalm 25, David writes, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are, my, you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful <clears throat> toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity. Their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. 
Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. I don't think it's an accident that this psalm has so many reflections of number six. This is the blessing, after all, that has been spoken over Israel from the time of Moses until the time of David and even unto today. Every Jewish person knows this. They know this ironic benediction or blessing. The psalmist, as he writes, is picturing God as the keeper, defender, deliverer, as the one who sheds light on life for Israel. And he cries out that God would do this in his own life as he owns his dependence on God. My hope is in you. And he cries out for mercy, for God to turn his face toward him and be gracious to him. The parallels cannot be missed. All the doing is done by the great doer. The Lord knows and loves those who are his. Those God favors are held in his hand. Now we see this, this next, uh, this second couplet here. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Mark this. It is the glory of God to be kind to the undeserving. It is the glory of God to be kind to the undeserving. Now this phrase the Lord make His face shine on you. Has an allusion to the sun. The picture here, the, the, the vibe, if you will, the feeling in the Hebrew reader is that picture of the sun shining on the earth, giving light and life to all things. You might remember in John 1, that's exactly how John, the beloved disciple, described Jesus. The living word, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. God making his face to shine upon his people is a picture of the shining of his glory. We should have in mind the effect of the sun, but whenever we see over and over and over again in scripture, light shining, these concepts are to give us the picture of God's glory. From the beginning, when God said, let there be light, to the end in Revelation, when the, the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, will not need lamps, won't need sun or moon, because the glory of God himself will be its light. We see this picture of God's presence, God's personhood revealed in the shining of his glory. So as Aaron would pray this prayer, the Lord make his face shine on you. What he's saying is exactly what God has already done. That he would reveal his glory in such a way that it would give you life and light. That it would illuminate your way. That it would guide you. You may remember the picture of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and his face having met with God glowed it was radiant so much so that he had to cover it with a veil the people are like whoa dude no we can't look at you because you're shiny and anyway <laughs> so he covered his face with a veil until the glory of the lord faded from him in that way jesus coming down from the mountain at the time of his transfiguration shined with the glory of god there is a visible presence of light as God's glory shone upon them. You all remember the nativity scene as the angels came and the, the angels uh, appeared to the shepherds and they were terrified, terrified, right? They were sore afraid in the King James. Why? Because the glory of the Lord shone about them. Blazing light this is the picture. It's the glory of God. But notice 
just as the, the blessing and keeping are intertwined, it's almost as if it's a, a result or a fruit of that. The Lord making his face shine upon the people results in and, and derives from his grace to them. That phrase, be gracious to you, does in fact give the picture of grace as we know it. It's about kindness and compassion. In the Hebrew, it, it is interchangeable in many ways with mercy. God is giving kindness, compassion, and favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. That's pretty important as we look at how God treats his people going forward. Because in just a few chapters, they're going to start out, they're not even going to get three days out before they start grumbling and complaining that God's not taking care of them. I mean, man, three days? You can't handle three days? You have no provisions and God gives you manna from heaven and you're griping about it? That's how it works. I can recognize that. Because my heart far too often ends up in that same place. I see the blessings of God all around me. He does great and amazing things. I lose focus and get distracted by the world as if it has something to offer me. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. It's the glory of God to be kind to the undeserving. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Going all the way into the New Testament now. Ephesians chapter 1. I can see the smiles on some of your faces because you know exactly where we're going and why. I should read less. I will read more. Because I can. Starting with verse 3. Actually, let's back up to 2. I'll just keep adding to what I'm going to read here. Back up to verse 2, because we see here in verse 2 a salutation that is the equivalent of a benediction here. The same type of formula in this subjunctive voice, in, in this uh, almost imperative-sounding prayer, as he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same type of thing. May God grant you His peace and His grace Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, notice this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him, we'll hear that again later, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. It is the glory of God to be kind to the undeserving. As we read that in Ephesians, he's speaking here to those who are united to Christ by faith. He'll go on to clarify that in chapter 2. But those who are united to Christ by faith, it's not by the strength of their faith, it's by the grace of God. The faith just means I have received the gift, unwrapped it, made it mine. 
I'm taking hold of this thing that God has done. All God, all the time, I'm blessed to be a part of it. That's how we receive Christ. That kind of faith. When that's true of us, then all blessing, every spiritual blessing is already ours in Christ in the heavenly realms. Does that mean we have earthly prosperity and we never get sick and all our bills are paid and, and you know we never have flat tires on the highway and nobody ever does us wrong? Come on, man. Let's just think about it. Jesus promised that we would have trouble in this world. Did he not? And I don't know if you know this, Jesus is always right. We have trouble in this world, do we not? Well, as we look at the Old Testament picture, when God is speaking of his shalom, we'll talk about that in a few moments, as he's speaking about his shalom and the prosperity that is to come, it does include the picture of health and prosperity and God's goodness to them in a very tangible sense. And yet that was not the experience that they went through every day. Not according to their understanding. So we must recognize that God is always faithful, but His faithfulness does not always look like you would order it on the menu. Sometimes, maybe you've gone through this, if you've ever gone through the drive through at McDonald's, in Stevensville in particular, and you drive away from, I'm sorry if anybody works there, I apologize. And you drive away from that, from that window, having very specifically ordered what you wanted to get, paid your money, you get down the road and you open it up, oh, I wanted a Big Mac, I got a McChicken. I wanted no onions. They got onions all over this thing. They got ketchup on the outside of the bun. Anyway then you know exactly what it feels like to hear these blessings that God's going to take care of us and He's going to prosper us and, 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 and He's watching out for us. But that's not what I ordered. Unlike McDonald's, God is sovereign. God gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want. If you work in food service at all, don't do that to your customers. You are not sovereign. You don't get to tell them what they want, what they need. God does. And so when God says, I will bless you, and the blessing doesn't look like it did in your menu, it's because your menu is wrong. It's because your order is wrong. Your expectation is wrong. God is right. And His blessing faithfully comes to those that belong to Him. Sometimes those blessings look different than we want. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. You may have a translation that says the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. This was a phrase that was a struggle for me to find consistency in other people's studies, and it was a struggle for me to, to figure out what exactly does it mean? What is the difference between what, what it's, when it says that God should make His face shine on you and when He should turn His face toward you or lift up His countenance upon you? And what I'm discovering as I'm walking through this and turning to people much smarter than myself is that in many ways it's the same thing. And yet in some very clear and important ways, it's very different. The Lord make His face shine on you. He's, he's revealing His glory, His personal presence. But this idea of Him turning His face toward you, He is turning to you. He is personally involved in an intimate favor and blessing toward you. It's not just that God is present and making His glory known. It's that He's personally turning to you. And you're His. And He gives peace as He turns His face toward you. Peace is an elusive thing in our world. Something we often chase, seldom catch. We live in a world 
where anxiety is the norm, not the exception. When depression and fear are greater pandemics than COVID could have ever dreamed of being if a virus has aspirations. Why? Why is that? I want to suggest to you it's because we have left God out. Even as Christ followers, far too often our faith, here I'm speaking not of the trust but of our doctrine, our understanding of who God is has been too shallow for too long. And we have taught God's blessings as feelings. We have taught faith as a feeling. We've taught peace as a feeling. And that's not altogether untrue, but it is entirely incomplete. Is there such a thing as a feeling of peace? Yes, obviously. We all recognize it. But the feeling of peace is the after effect. Sometimes it's the after effect of a genuine peace. Sometimes it's the after effect of just having things going our way. I feel really peaceful when I'm sitting at the lake and the weather is nice and it's not too hot and it's not too cold and it's, the sun is bright and beautiful and the sky is blue, but it's not too bright. There's just enough overcast for me to feel comfortable. And I forget about the fact that I still have to go to work tomorrow. And I forget about the fact that other people uh, have betrayed me. None of that matters. I'm just caught up in the moment. Is that the peace of God? Let me say generally, no, it's not. Not that it doesn't come from God as a gift sometimes, but that is the response to stimuli. I'm in a situation that feels peaceful. Well, man, you can be a pagan and feel that peace. Anybody can feel that peace when everything is coming together rightly. That's not the peace that is being spoken about here how do i know that how do you know that we should know it because what happens next in the story they're about to leave to go into canaan what are they going to do when they get to the promised land they're going into conquest god is leading them into war but he's commanding them to pray that as God turns his face toward them, he would give them peace. Write this down. The presence of God is greater than the absence of trouble. The presence of God is greater than the absence of trouble. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? Somebody say it. I have overcome the world. That means nothing if I'm not aligned with Him. If I don't belong to Him, then the fact that Jesus has overcome the world doesn't really help me any. But if I recognize as His that in Jesus overcoming the world, all who are united to Christ also overcome. We see that in Revelation over and over again. Those who overcome. He who overcomes. He who overcomes. Do you do that in your own strength? No, you do it because you're united to the one who has overcome the world. As God is saying, Aaron, pray this. By the way, if God's commanding it, that he should pray this, you better know God's already answering it. He's already got it in his mind. This is his plan. We'll come to that at the end. Aaron, as you pray this, You're praying that God would turn his face toward you. That he would not only reveal his glory, he's going to do that to the world as well. But that in this, there would be a personal connection with him, an intimacy. That not only would he shine, but he would turn toward you and give you peace, not through the absence of trouble and difficulty, but through his presence in the midst of it. This is the power and the beauty of the presence of God in the life of the believer. So much more to say, but I need to move on. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you. Be gracious to you. Turn His face toward you and give you peace. He wraps this up following the command of this blessing. 
Because the Lord said to Moses in verse uh, 22 and 23, Tell Aaron and his sons, the priests, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Now, there are a couple things we need to see from that if we're going to understand this next portion, or really any of it. God's commanding it, therefore they must do it. Somebody say amen. When God commands, we must obey. Amen? So he's telling them to pray, and he's telling them how to pray. There's a distinction here between how God is commanding them to invoke his name and how the pagans throughout the culture would invoke the names of their gods. They would invoke the name of their god as if it were an incantation that essentially traps or enslaves their perceived god. So that the the believer, if you will, could manipulate this god into doing what they wanted. God is telling Aaron and his sons to pray for God to do what God wants to do. To do what God already has intended and promised to do. And to repeat it over and over again. This will become a theme even unto today among those who would become the Jews. We pray this priestly blessing invoking the name of the Lord three times here. An emphasis on the reality of the Lord and citing yourself or the people as the object that God is repeating three times in the couplets here that it is you that he wants to bless, his people, those who belong to him. It only applies to those who belong to him. Those who do not belong to him are outside of this benediction, outside of this blessing. He says at the end, so they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. And if you're like me, hopefully you're not, because that's a really strange thing. If you're like me, you thought, that's a weird thing to say. They will put my name on them? What does that even mean? This is why. This is why God wants them to use this pattern for the blessing. Because the people of God must remember the person, promises, character, and permanence of God. That he is with us. That it is his name. That he is our light and our salvation. That he is our hope. That it is him that brings us prosperity. It is Him that gives us mercy in our failings. we got to hear it. we got to hear the name of God and know that He personally connects to us because we're so forgetful. And they're going to forget very soon. I'm going to bet that most of us here are going to struggle with forgetting by the time we leave this sanctuary today. It's my prayer for you that in this sermon, in the memory verse, in the songs that we sang earlier and we'll sing again, in the remembrance celebration that we will take together in a few moments, that we will, through these things, put God's name on us, in our minds, in our hearts, mark this down the Lord longs to bless those who belong to him the the Lord longs to bless those who belong to him they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them the picture here of this putting the name on his people is reflected in the historic tradition of the wife taking the name of the husband Now, we've distorted that in a lot of ways, and it's uh, actually falling out of vogue today, as if we who know the Lord should care about what is popular and acceptable. Heard heard of an individual saying, you should never call a woman Mrs., because that refers to a man owning her, as if it's a slavery. 
It does refer to a man owning her, for sure. But not like that. Owning her as a special possession of all the women in the world. She is mine. Don't forget that the picture of marriage is that the man and the woman become one flesh. She is mine and I am hers. This is the same picture that the Lord repeats through the prophets of Israel. My beloved is mine and I am his. In the Song of Solomon, we see this picture of intimacy, of oneness. When I left for the Air Force, I wanted to make sure that we got married before I left because I didn't want a girlfriend waiting back home. I wanted Mrs. Zeiger waiting back home. I wanted someone who was mine and to whom I belonged. You want to get a good picture of it? You might remember Woody from Toy Story looking at his boot where Andy had written his name. Woody didn't feel like a slave. It was what he longed for. To have Andy's name put on him. When that happened to Buzz, everything changed. Having his name on them meant they belonged. There was a special relationship. The Lord longs to bless those who belong to him. All right, let's bring this to a close. The blessing God gave to be spoken over his people, Israel, is the same blessing that he has for his people, his church today. The greatest blessing of God's people is the reality of belonging to him. This blessing, the point of this blessing is to put God's name on his people so that we can know I'm Andy's toy. I'm married to the Lord. I am the bride of Christ. I am God's special possession. The greatest blessing of God's people is the reality of belonging to Him. In Israel, they had been building toward this. God had arranged them because His people were to have every part of their lives, every aspect focused on, centered on, arranged around God. He is the center. On his terms, in holy worship, because he's not like us, set apart. We, as Christ followers, have been set apart to him. Those who belong to God are his based on his work, not our own. He is the great doer, our Savior. He knows those who are His. Our salvation is initiated by the Lord through His Holy Spirit, and He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. The Father favors and preserves those who have become His true children through adoption in Christ. He has actively done all this, excuse me, He has actively done all this to the praise of His glorious grace. Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God, making peace with Him through His work on the cross as He died in our place. We will, not might, we will have trouble in this world. But we are His. We are His. And He has overcome the world for us. He's with us. And for us. Because we are sealed to Him by the Holy Spirit. We wear His name. And He longs to pour out His blessings on His people. The greatest of which is the reality of belonging to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven... um, It is impossible for me or for any human preacher to do full justice to the glory of your word. But I pray that now today, 
that your spirit would have spoken and continue to speak beyond your servant, beyond this moment, that the eternal thoughts and principles of your word would linger in our minds and hearts as we leave here. Father, as we prepare now to remember and to celebrate what Jesus did on our behalf at the cross, humble us, break us, take out the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh that responds to you. Lord, for those here who perhaps have gone through the motions or perhaps this is all new for them, but in any case, they have not entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that your spirit would move them now. That they might see the glory of your grace and take hold of it for themselves. Lord, you are great you are faithful and in Christ those who believe belong fully to you accept our worship build our lives make us more like Jesus today in his name we pray amen